0: Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Please turn to Hebrews chapter 6.
1: Today's passage is from Hebrews chapter six, verses 13 through 20, excuse me. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 6:13 through 20.
0: Good morning, Laura and I have been playing a little game of where's Waldo lately, I don't know if anybody, uh, (laughs) we we realized about a month ago that we have been sitting in the same place for 15 years. And I would always say, well, it's because the kids, the kids like their spot, but I don't have that excuse anymore. So uh, we've been moving around. So I'll apologize if we take your seat. If we ever take your seat, please forgive me. But we just thought it would be fun to, to sit with different groups in different places. and So, uh, yeah, that's where we've been. Um, we do have an announcement from the search committee. Kirk mentioned that earlier at the beginning of the service. Um, the, uh, it's the fastest search committee uh, I've ever seen, and it's because of the Lord's provision. Uh, we, that, that search committee, I was not on the search committee, uh, but the search committee made the decision early on to look at internal, just to see if there's anybody in our own area and community. And there actually had been someone, uh, Paul Eichel, who had expressed, he'd kind of come to me uh, weeks ago, just said, would you pray with me about this? And uh, so he and I had been praying about it. And we just, we worked that process. I keep saying we, I'm talking about as a church. The search committee uh, interviewed him and, and looked at uh, looked at different things. And um, they have represent they have unanimously recommended Paul as uh, our pastor of discipleship candidate, the elder board has unanimously endorsed that recommendation, and so we're going to be doing a, a candidating presentation. Uh, Paul is so Paul is. Uh is one of our own. This is Paul over here, uh, and Paul is one of our elders, been serving as an elder. Uh, he has, I don't know if everybody knows this. Most of you know Paul at least a little bit. Some of you know him well. Uh, what you may or may not know is, is he has has been in vocational ministry. He has at two different stages in his life. If you add it up, it's more than a decade of student ministry, um, in, in one in an EFCA church, another in this community at a different church, uh, and when he hasn't been doing youth ministry, he's been youth ministry adjacent as a teacher. I think if you look at his career, it's uh, lots and lots of, of discipleship of young people, and that is actually the, the, the main emphasis of the position. There's some other pieces as well in, in what we're doing, but, uh, and so I'm just really excited about that. Um, On May 21st, we'll do a candidating presentation uh, it won't be a full-blown candidating weekend because, you know, a lot of times when you're bringing a candidate, you're kind of showing them around town. And well, I mean, Paul could give the tour of, of town. Uh, so we're, we're going to kind of skip some of those parts, but we are going to do that Sunday morning. We'll have a forum during the Sunday school hour. We'll be given over to that and we'll have, here's, here's some, some of Paul from Paul on his own hearts and his own heart and Cheryl's, and then lots of time for questions and answers from, the, from anybody who wants to come to that forum. And then Paul will be preaching on the 21st. He'll share from the word and then the following sunday so we want to give people a whole week to ask more questions uh, from him or from any of the elders or search committee members and just to pray to be praying for that week and then we'll do a vote on uh, may 28th that's sunday and i know it's a holiday weekend but i'm kind of hopeful that that will work for most people anyway so that's what's coming up. If you have any questions or want to ask any more about the process or how we got to this point, you are very welcome to talk to any member of the search committee uh, and, or to any of the elders. If you're not sure who those people are, I'm always happy. I won't stand up here and name a bunch of names, but if you don't know who those people are, please uh, talk to me and I'll point you uh, to, to what you need to be able to find out more. So And be praying, be praying, please, all this month as we seek the Lord's will for this. Speaking of praying, let's ask the Lord's help with this passage, which is in front of us right now. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you so much for bringing us together this morning. We thank you for the joy, and it is a joy, to be able to worship you. Uh, we have uh, worshipped you in uh, even just in getting here this morning. I appreciate what Alex was as he led us in prayer a few moments ago. Just even seeing your hand at work in the creation around us, you you have written your name on everything, and and to be able to see it, see you and worship you that way, and then to come into this place to gather with our brothers and sisters to sing your praises, to fellowship together. What a joy! What a what a privilege! So it is too, Lord, to open up your word in front of us, and we pray that you will uh, instruct us, encourage us, exhort us, and teach us from this passage in Hebrews this morning. And so we look to you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you. This we ask in the name of our rock and our redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Back in January, the mayor of New York, excuse me, Newark, the mayor of Newark, New Jersey, signed a proclamation. And uh, the proclamation announced a, city, a sister city agreement with uh, another locality, another municipality. It was a sister city agreement with the Hindu nation of Kailasa. Uh, The agreement was one of those things, towns do this kind of thing and cities do this sort of thing sometimes, it was an agreement that they would exchange things culturally and trade and and just a nice way to promote understanding and and cultural, you know, just cultural understanding between the two places, between Newark, New Jersey and and Kailasa. And the mayor was very uh, excited about this, he felt good about the agreement, he was confident that it would be beneficial to both sides. Uh, His confidence, though, was misplaced. You see, it turns out that the Hindu nation of Kailasa does not exist. Right? If you're scratching your head right now, where is that? I don't remember reading about that one in geography class. Well, you're right. It's not a real thing. It doesn't exist. It's actually uh, the creation of a scam artist named uh, Swami Nithyanada, uh, Mr. Uh, Nithyananda is uh, actually a fugitive from justice. He's wanted in his own home country. Uh, he's been on the lambs since at least 2019. Uh, but he must also be a very wealthy man because a few years ago he bought an island. He bought an island off the coast of Ecuador and he decreed that the island was a new nation. My island, he said, is a new nation. It's the Hindu nation of Kailasa. Uh, but of course, the real world doesn't work that way. Just having a website doesn't make you a nation. Uh, and so the whole thing was a scam. It was all, it was all fake. Uh, fortunately, the mayor's staff figured it out. I guess somebody did a Google search or something, and, and they figured out that this was not a real thing, and so they revoked the agreement a few days later and quietly, you know how that is, quietly moved on to, to something else. Uh, that little story, though, is a good example of how easy it is, how easy it is to place our confidence in something that does not deserve it. It happens all the time. It's so easy for human beings to trust in something that does not actually deserve our trust. Uh, last Sunday, we looked at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 12. We're studying through Hebrews as, as a church. And uh, we looked at verses 4 through 12 last week. And we focused on, on a question that many times people have, especially reading Hebrews. The question is, is, can a believer lose his or her salvation? And we made the case that the answer is No. A truly born-again believer cannot lose his salvation. However, it is possible to look like you're a born-again believer and not actually be saved. That, that, and that's really what that passage, verses uh, four, through, 4 through 12, and especially 4 through 6, that's what it's warning us about, making sure that we have given our lives over to Jesus Christ. And then the, the passage shifted to assurance. And that really, I tried to emphasize that, verses 9 through 12 is all about the assurance that we have if we have trusted in Jesus. And so the author says in verse 9, as for you, as for you, that is to say, as for the beloved who have surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ, as for you, he says, we feel sure of better things. What kinds of things? Things that belong to salvation. So it's this idea of certainty, sureness of your salvation. And then we looked quickly at some of those salvation things. They're listed there in verses 10 through 12. Good works, love, service to the saints, patience, faith, a whole bunch of things. The last thing on that list, the last thing there in verse 12 is promises. This is another salvation thing. True Christians, people who belong to Jesus Christ, will seek in our lives to imitate those who, uh, to, to use the author's words, who through faith and patience inherit the promises, he says. And that's what we turn our attention to now. Uh, We turn to the promises of God. Because the author of this book wants us to know, before he goes any further, he wants us to know that we can trust God's promises. Yes, the world is filled with all kinds of scam artists, right? All kinds of spiritual scam artists. But we, who know Jesus, we can trust in the Lord's promises. Uh, this morning, we're going to wrap up our study of the first half of Hebrews. Hebrews is a long enough book. I'm breaking it into two parts. And so we've done part one this spring. We're going to wrap up this morning by with really the end of chapter six. We'll p- pick up with Melchizedek and, and that whole thing. When we come back to it, probably probably in the fall, but man, I'm not sure yet. I haven't decided. But, uh, but we'll be coming back to Hebrews eventually. But we're, we're finishing this first half with this emphasis on the promises of God. And what I want to do with our time today is I want to show you uh, just straight from these verses, working through verses 13 through 20, I want to show you two reasons that we can trust God's promises. And then we'll end with the benefit, the benefit that we receive when we do. So two reasons to trust God's promise, God's promises, and then the benefit of trusting his promises when we do trust in them. So let's, uh, let's get into the text, and we'll start with these reasons. So reason number one, the first reason we can trust God's promises has to do with his track record. It's his track record. We can trust God's promises because when God makes a promise, he keeps it. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. And that's what we're told in the first part of today's passage in verses 13 through 15. So let me read those again. So they're fresh here in our heads. He says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, so he's just talked about promises. And then he says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he, God, swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise so, uh, again, our Bibles, my Bible anyway, has a little head, bre- header, a break, a break between verses uh, 12 and 13. Uh, but there is no break when the letter is originally written. Uh, and so verse 12 ends with this exhortation to be imitators of those who will inherit the promises of God. And then he says, and and then it's as if he says, well, let me give you an example. And and he takes us to one of the Bible's greatest examples of someone who did just that. So if in our heads we're thinking, who should I imitate? Well, he says, let me tell you about someone to imitate. Let me tell you about Abraham. So he points us to the example of Abraham. And of course, we remember that Hebrews was written originally, the original first century audience uh, was Hebrew Christians. That's why we call it Hebrews, uh, Jewish Christians. uh, So Jewish people who had converted to Christ. So Jewish Christians. And so Abraham is especially important to them. I mean, we're kind of interested in Abraham too, because he's so much in the Bible, but they're especially interested in Abraham because he's the founder of their race. He's the founder of their faith, their, their Judaism, and, and he's the founder of, of their, their whole race. And so that's what makes Abraham a great example. The author could give us lots of other examples. And when you get to the famous chapter 11, we'll see lots of other examples. But for now, he's just going to focus on this one example to make the point that... So look at how God keeps his promise to Abraham that's what he does for everybody that's that's the point here so he says he reminds us verse 13 God made a promise to Abraham and I think at this point it's useful to just spend a few minutes reminding ourselves what that promise was what is this promise to Abraham that God made so let's talk for just a a few minutes about Abraham Uh, Abraham of course is the the father of the Jews right he's he's the one through whom the whole race uh, was descended um, but and, and when we think of him that way, we sometimes forget where he came from. And where he came from was he was, he was a pagan. Right? He was not a God follower. He was not someone who, who knew the Lord or followed the Lord. Uh, he, every indication in the scriptures he was, he, was a, he was a pagan, to use that kind of old-fashioned word. Uh, he lived, we're told in Genesis 11, he, was, uh, he lived in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur of the Chaldeans, basically modern day modern-day Iraq, ancient Babylon. So he was... I don't know if uh, ethnically, but but regionally, he was he was a Babylonian technically. But then, then the Lord called him to himself. The Lord singled out Abraham and called him to himself. And this is where we we see the first declaration of the promise. And uh, actually, go ahead and stick a paper or something here in Hebrews. And I want to turn back to Genesis for just a, f- a few passages. So Genesis uh, twelve. Is the, is the first time we see the promise to Abraham. So I'm going to just read the first three verses in Genesis 12. You're welcome to turn or you just listen. So we, we read this. This is Genesis 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. Here's the first statement of the promise to Abraham. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram... Hadn't changed his name yet. He would later. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, or the Chaldeans, and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation... And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that's where it all starts. That's ground zero for the promise to Abraham. Uh, the Lord tells Abraham, and it, a lot of times we'll talk about the promise, the Abrahamic promise in three, three categories. Uh, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you a nation, and I'm, I'm going to make you into a nation. So I'm going to give you land, I'm going to make you a nation, and I'm going to bless the whole world through you. Right, that, if you want to try to remember simply the Abrahamic promise, God's promise to Abraham. It's land, the promised land, it's nation, the Jewish people, and it's the blessing. Ultimately, that's fulfilled in the Messiah. Bless the whole world through you. And so that promise is stated first time, Genesis 12. But then God keeps reminding Abraham, just like he keeps reminding us of his promise. And so he says it again. He, he restates it, and he actually goes to a covenant ceremony as well uh, in chapter 15. Uh, Genesis 15 verse 4. Uh, God said, uh, Abraham's, Abraham's kind of going through a struggling point because he doesn't have any kids and yet he's gonna, God's gonna make him a nation and, and so he comes up with a plan he's like well I'm gonna make my servant is my heir and I guess that'll be what God meant and so my servant is gonna be the one who inherits everything and God says no <laughs> uh, Genesis uh, 15 4, behold the word of the Lord came to Abram uh, this man shall not be your heir your servant shall not be your heir your very own son who hasn't been born yet shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said to him, "Look toward heaven and the, and number the stars if you're able to number them." And then he said, "That's how your offspring will be." And so you get that confirmation of the promise. It's different wording, but it's the same promise that God made in chapter 12. He makes it again, he reiterates it again in chapter 17, and then he says it again in chapter 22 and genesis twenty two is important because that's the chapter where now Abraham's son has been born. Isaac is is born. and and uh, God, meets him and tells him to sacrifice Isaac. God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And so he takes Isaac to Mount Moriah, and he's prepared to do it. He's prepared to obey God in this way. And once the Lord sees, okay, you were prepared to obey me, the Lord stops him. He says, you don't have to sacrifice your son, right? It's looking ahead to Jesus. I'm going to sacrifice my son, God knows. And so God provides the ram. He provides a ram in the thicket. And and so it's this wonderful picture of of that blessing, that, that third part of the covenant that's Someday will come. And then God reiterates the promise again. You see it again there in Genesis 22. He says to him, so Genesis 22, 17. And I want to read you this one because this one is the closest to what the author of Hebrews quotes back in chapter six. So we're going to go back to Hebrews in just a moment. But Genesis 22, 17, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And as I say, that's the one. If you go back now, go back to Hebrews chapter 6. If you look at verse 14, uh, it, it's not an exact quote. The authors of Scripture don't, don't often exact quote, they'll just tell us which verse they mean. And so Hebrews 6 14, God swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you, and surely I will multiply you. And so when verse 13 here in Hebrews, right, that's all backstory. I just kind of wanted to fill that in for those who haven't read Genesis lately or maybe are less familiar with that story. That's the backstory right, when verse 13 says God made a promise to Abraham, it's that big, big promise, right, this big promise that's affected the whole human race in one way or another. I'm going to give you a, I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to make you a nation, and I'm going to bless the whole world through you. That's the promise that, that he's talking about. The other thing we see in those Genesis passages, and it's affirmed here in Hebrews, is that Abraham waited patiently, Right, this is what we're told. Verse 15 says it. Right, Abraham waited patiently on the promise of the Lord. You see that in verse 15. And thus Abraham having patiently waited. Uh, that does not mean, I hope this encourages somebody, uh, this, that does not mean he waited perfectly. <laughs> right? Waiting patiently is not the same as waiting perfectly. Uh, Abraham didn't wait perfectly. And you can read through uh, that, that you know, Genesis 12 through, call it 25 or 24. And you can read how he, he struggled sometimes, he got discouraged sometimes, he even got a little impatient. There was this whole episode where he and Sarah kind of together conspired to make God's promise come true with their own little plan. And so they concocted this plan where her, her maidservant, Sarah's maidservant, uh, she gave her servant to Abraham as basically as a concubine. And so legally, that child would count as their child, as Abraham and, and, and Sarah's, but, uh, but that is not what God was. Planning. He wasn't planning a a concubine's uh, child. He was planning the wife's child. Galatians makes much of that. And so, you know, Abraham was not perfect, right? But he he was patient. And that's the author's summary here. If you want to summarize how did Abraham, what did he do? He waited on the Lord. Not perfectly, but patiently. He waited patiently on the Lord. And because he did, because he trusted, because he trusted in the big picture, God's promise. We're told in verse 15, he obtained it. And the, and the author really emphasizes that part the most, right? So, and, and so it, it's this direct connection. God made a promise to Abraham and God kept his promise to Abraham, right? So, and, and the key piece Abraham does is his faith. He trusts the promise. He was justified by his faith, but he, he, but, but as far as God's piece of it, if we're looking at how God treated with Abraham, God made a promise and he kept his promise Because that's what he does, right? To to this idea of his track record. And you see it again and again in the scriptures. As I say, for for his purposes here in chapter six, he's just going to give us the one example. It's the best example because it's Abraham. But uh, when we get to chapter 11, he's going to show us a whole string of them. And eventually he's going to say, I can keep going, but this letter's getting too long. And, 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 And that chapter 11, time after time after time, God makes his promises and he keeps his promises. And so we can trust him. We can trust him because of his track record. So that's reason number one this text gives us. The second reason it gives us is his character. So the other reason to trust God's promise and all of his promises is because of his character. That is to say, we can trust him because it's impossible for him to break his promises. It's in his very nature. He cannot break his own promises. And that's the argument that's made in verses 16, 17, and 18. Uh, the Lord's eternal character. And he's going to zoom in on two qualities of God specifically. We'll get to them in a second. But his, his eternal character is such that when he makes a promise, he always keeps it. He always keeps his promise. Uh, let's read uh, 16 through 18 again. He says, For people... Swear by something greater than themselves. And we're, so we're talking about oath-taking now, this idea of swearing. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So verse 16 starts with this principle of an oath. So we're going to shift now to thinking about oaths. Uh, and oh, so we had promise, right? We're talking about promises. Now we're going to talk about this thing that's kind of related to promises, but it's a little different, right? So we've got the promises versus, uh, 14 through 16 or, uh, 13, 13 through, through four, 13 through 15, and now oaths 16 through 18. And an oath is a solemn promise that someone makes. So you make an oath to verify the truthfulness of what the person is saying. And in this case, God's making an oath to verify the truthfulness of his promise, and that's the interconnection here. But an oath, generally speaking, is a solemn promise that verifies the truthfulness of whatever the person is is saying. And here's the key thing about an oath that the author appeals to, is the, the thing that makes an oath work is that it appeals to a higher authority that's the that's why an oath works it's an appeal to something that's higher than the person who's making the oath right and so and and in the ancient world especially it would be a deity but and and often still today that's true but but it's an appeal to a higher authority so the the example the author cites is courts right he talks about the court system when he says in verse 15 there verse 16 he talks about disputes uh, in all their disputes, verse 16, an oath is final for confirmation. And so, in the courts, if there was, you know, if this side was suing this side, or there was some kind of disagreement, uh, they would each be put under oath by the judge or by the magistrate, and they would swear by, you know, the God Apollo, or you know, if you were Jewish, you'd swear by Yahweh, and you, that was meant to verify. So now, this person's going to tell the truth. We're going to put this one under oath. This one's going to tell the truth. They're going to tell the truth. All right? So, so that's how it works in courts. Um, maybe a more familiar example for most of us is like the presidential oath of office right and that's a thing that you know our culture and our our our, our nation puts a lot of emphasis on right the president puts his hand on the bible and and swears to defend the constitution and 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 the, and the whole idea is he's he's not claiming or you know or maybe someday she is is not claiming i'm i'm so trustworthy in and of myself that i'm going to uphold this really the tradition is the oath is really saying i'm 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 promising uh, in accountability to someone higher than me that i am going to tell the truth on this or that i'm going to uphold this this constitution in the case of the presidency and so uh, it's an appeal to a higher authority. That's the whole thing. It's a, it's a little bit of a like, you know, something you see in movies sometimes, but sometimes people will swear by their mother's grave. You ever heard that? Like, you know, there'll be some mobster who you know he lies about everything, right, in, in the police drama, but then he wants to say, oh, I'm telling the truth, I'm telling the truth, I swear on my mother's grave. Again, his mom is, is a higher authority than him. That's that idea. So it's whatever the particular, however, whatever form the oath takes, it's an appeal to an authority that's greater than the person's making it. That's how oaths work. So back to the Lord now, right? So back to the Lord. Uh, the author tells us here, God wanted us to, to know, he wanted Abraham to know specifically, but he wanted all of, us, all of us to know in general that we can trust his promise. And so he, he swore an oath, we're told. And you could actually go, and I decided not to take the time to do it, but if you go back to Genesis 15, you can see there's this whole covenant ceremony where the Lord... Um, Basically has Abraham cut open a bunch of animals, lay them on either side, and the Lord, usually the person, Abraham should have walked between the animals, and the idea would be, may this happen to me if I ever break the oath. And it said there's this beautiful picture where the Lord puts Abraham to sleep, and the Lord walks between the the cut-up animals. That's the oath I think it's talking about for Abraham. If you want the specific on it, you can go read it. Uh, but, But God swore an oath, we're told. The author of Hebrews doesn't go into any of that. But the Lord swore an oath to verify the truthfulness. So how do I know I can trust God's promises? Well, God, God swore an oath that I could trust his promises, but the author wants us to know there's no external authority. So he, you know, if you're the highest authority in the universe, who are you going to swear by? You have to swear by yourself. And so we're told this whole, that's why God is the one who has to pass between those cut-up animals in Genesis 15. It's, he is swearing on by himself. He is the highest authority of all. So I'm, I'm explaining all those pieces so we understand how the different moving parts work here. But the point of it is, the point of it is that God's promises are completely, inviolably trustworthy. It's impossible, he's telling us. Because he, he's the one making the oath and he's making it by himself, it is impossible for him to break it. Which is why he then says, It is impossible for God to lie. Right, it's impossible for God to lie. And then he makes this uh, it's a, I don't know about you, but whenever I read this, I always kind of scratch my head for a second. You know, he says, By two unchangeable things. Uh, you know, he cannot lie according to two unchangeable things. What are the two unchangeable things? It's the promise and it's the oath. So those are the two unchangeable things. If you want to write that on the margin, the next time you're reading through Hebrews, uh, the two unchangeable things are God's own promise, which can't be changed because God cannot lie, and it's God's own oath, which cannot be changed because, well, because God cannot lie, and because God's the highest authority of all. There's no greater greater being than He is, and so His promises. How how can I trust his promises? I can trust them because of his character. Uh, His promises are going to never change because he never changes. And his promises are never going to prove false because he never proves false. He he never lies. He's completely truthful. He is truth. So he never changes. So his promises never change. He never lies. And so his promises never lie. Which means if we make it more personal now, the Lord is never going to pull some switcheroo. He's never going to bait and switch us. He's not going to suddenly do something bad or something false or he told us he would do this and he's like, ah, oh, psych, I'm going to do that over here. He's never going to do that. He's never going to change the rules and, and stop keeping his promises, which is such good news, right? You know, imagine if you were uh, you were driving, you got in your car one day to drive to school or to drive to work and uh, and suddenly the rules had all changed. You imagine that. You get in your car and you, you start driving down the right side of the road and suddenly turns out it's drive on the left side tuesday. Right? Somebody somebody decided, you know, this tuesday of the month we're going you know, to like a like a fast food uh, promotion or something. And somehow you miss the memo. Nobody told you. So you're trying to drive on the right side and everybody's coming at you and it's like Mario Kart. You're like swerving around everybody. That would be so fr- it would be frustrating and it would even be dangerous. It would be dangerous if 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 that kind of thing happened. Thankfully it doesn't work that way. They don't do that with the rules of the road. They tend to be consistent. More importantly, that's how it is with God's promises. God's promises are never, ever, ever, ever going to change. And that, of course, is where my analogy breaks down, because they do change the rules of the road sometimes. Usually they give us lots of, of, uh, of warnings so we know it's coming, but, but they do change the traffic rules, but they never change the Lord's promises. Nobody can change the Lord's promises. Why? Again, because it would violate his very nature. It would violate his very character. And so he never goes back. He never changes, not even once all of which means we can trust them. We can trust God's promises because we can trust the God. We can trust him. Now, I have to warn you at this point, that does not mean they come quick, right? That's very clear in scripture. It's even, it's, when, it's actually the main thrust of Hebrews 11 when we do get to that chapter eventually. God makes all those promises, but he doesn't always do them on our timing. Uh, and that, That's part of it. So there might be twists. There might be turns, there might be surprises along the way, there may be seasons of discouragement, maybe even doubt, sometimes maybe even pain, but we can endure. That's the exhortation here. We can endure. And remember, that's the, the, I've, I've made the case that that's the meta message that's the big picture message of of hebrews it's an encouragement to endure right enduring courage that's the title of this series We, we it's an encouragement to to press on in the lord and we can do that because we trust him we can trust him we trust his promises we trust him because of his track record and we trust him because of his character all of that brings us to the benefit The benefit. There's a benefit uh, that we get to enjoy when we do trust the Lord's promises. And the benefit in this passage, the benefit is hope. Hope. We have hope because we trust in the Lord's promises. The Lord's promises give us hope. Uh, That's what it says in the last part of verse 18. And I'll tell you now, I'm not going to get into any of the stuff about the priest and the Melchizedek part of verses uh, 18 through 20. I'm going to save that for when we come back to it because that's transitional shifting us back to that. I just want to focus on one part of this last section. He says in verse 18, So the Lord, the Lord made this oath so that... So now we're going to get the, the, the reason from God's perspective, which is why I frame it as the benefit for us. Here's why God did it for us. He did it so that we who have fled for refuge... Idiots fled to him. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So this is why God made this oath. This is why God made these promises. He did it so that we who have fled for refuge to Jesus would have hope. He did it to give us hope. Uh, Let me uh, just pause for a moment and, and just zero in on that description that description of believers, we who have fled for refuge, it just really captured me this week. Uh, and I just want to spend a minute with it. Do not apologize for that. Do not apologize for fleeing to Jesus for refuge. I, I could see somebody turning that back on us and kind of criticizing, with, criticizing us. You know, oh, you, you run away or you're scared. and You just go to Jesus because you're weak. You, you just need something to hide in. That is not a bad thing to hide, to take refuge in Jesus. That is a good thing. Because here's the thing. Let's talk plainly about human nature for just a moment. The fact of the matter is everybody seeks refuge in something. Every every human being with a beating heart seeks refuge in something. It's part of the package. It's inherent to the frailty of fallen human beings that we all seek refuge, uh, comfort, strength, protection, solace. We all seek refuge in something. The only question is what? Right? many people seek it in, in political power right? I, can, I can get power and I can use that power to accomplish what I want to accomplish uh, others seek refuge in, in education or, or in violence sometimes people, you know, they, they get frustrated and they, they, they go attack somebody or they hurt other people that's a way of trying to, to, to uh, satiate their own uh, discomfort and hurt and pain it's, it's a way to seek refuge Some seek refuge in in alcohol or in drugs. Some seek it in in pornography or in sex. Some seek it in in video games or escapism or movies or fantasies. Uh, Some some look for refuge in their money or their savings accounts or their work or their vacations. The point is everybody seeks refuge in something. The difference is that Christians seek refuge in Jesus. We seek refuge in Jesus. We reject the empty promises of, of the spiritual scamsters scammers, right? We, we reject their empty promises and we put our trust in the promises of God. He's the one in whom we take refuge. And because of that, because we do, because we put our trust in his promises and not the empty promises of the world, we have hope. That's, that's the connection he wants here. We have genuine hope that actually pays off right and that, that is the point of of this last part you know all those other things let us down eventually some of them sooner than others right you think of that list i made just a moment ago some of those things will get you through for a while others of them let us down almost immediately but they will all eventually let us down except because of his track record because of his character except for the lord jesus doesn't break his promises and so we have this hope right we hold fast this logical connection that gets made there in verse 18 we hold fast to our hope and that word means to grip something tightly like grab a hold of it and hold fast to it hold hold on tight uh, is the idea there that's what we do with the lord's promises we hold on to them tightly and that gives us hope and then the author gives us a picture us this uh i love these metaphors in scripture uh he gives us this picture of what it of what happens when we hold fast and and it's this is really where the benefit part of the hope really shines through the picture he gives us is an anchor talks about an anchor the hope we have from trusting god's promises verse 19 is like an anchor for our storm-tossed souls right verse 19 we have this and the word this refers to hope so we have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Our hope is a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. Uh, about a week ago, I was, uh, I was watching a, a how to video on YouTube. Uh, I can't remember what I was trying to fix, but I was trying to figure out how to do something at home, and that's the only way I ever managed to make home repairs. I gotta go look it up on, on YouTube. And so I, I watched this video, and when the video was done, uh, YouTube suggested I watch another video, right? Because that's what they do, they always want you to watch another video. And so before that one, had even ended. It was down there in the corner saying, oh, well, you'll probably like this. Uh, however, the, the this that they wanted me to watch had nothing to do with home repairs. It's like they knew me or something. They're like, yeah, you don't really mean it. Uh, they said, here's what you should want to watch. And it was, a, it was a history video. It was a little, it was a little video um, advertising or trying to get me to click and watch a, a video about 18th century sailing battleships. Right? and it was it, it, I could tell I just kind of looked it was 25 minutes long so it was a, a 25 minute um, animation the whole thing was a computer animation that would, and this is just a random picture I found to give you a feel of what I mean when I say 18th century sailing battleships no, no engines or motors it's all sails and uh, this thing was 25 minutes of this computer animation of how they worked and how the sails worked and what was on every deck and where they'd store the food and where they'd go to the bathroom I mean, everything was in this video and they were like, you probably want to watch that. And they were right. I, I, that, was, <laughs> that, was, that was a lot more interesting to me. Um, I, I did have enough self-control to wait. I, uh, I, I kind of you know, clicked save or whatever, and I, I came back to it, I think, later that night. I went back and watched it. And uh, it, it was pretty interesting. If you like that kind of thing, hit me up. I'll send you the link. But uh, here's why I tell you. You say, like, why are you going on about this video? Here's why I go on about the video. About halfway through this 25-minute animation, uh, the the, uh, the narrator got to the point about the anchors, the anchors on these ships. Uh, apparently, these sailing ships—so this, you know, the kind of stuff you know that the British Empire was built on—and you know, all that, all that that whole thing. Um, apparently, these ships had seven anchors. Yeah, so, me, I don't know anything about sailing. I'm mean, like, oh, put the anchor overboard. You know, woo, there goes the anchor. Uh, no, no, no. They, they had seven different anchors. The main anchors, uh, it was a pair, it wasn't just one anchor, there was a pair that were considered the main anchors. Each of these anchors, the main pair, weighed 10,000 pounds. So five tons each, these two anchors. And then there was a backup set that were like supplemental to those main anchors that also weighed 10,000 pounds each. So the main anchors of, this, of, of one of these ships, 40,000 pounds of anchor. Uh, and, and that was just the, the metal part itself. That wasn't these super thick cables and ropes and they had this whole elaborate system for how these things were, were, worked. And so these massive, massive... Um, anchors. They were so heavy, they had to design special cranes. So again, it's not like, you know, three guys grab the anchor and throw it at the side. They had these special cranes that were built into the ship. And and so it would take sometimes a lot of time to get it deployed and send those anchors over the sides. And then there was this whole other part that described how they'd pull them up again. And and again, it's not just kind of, you know, pull up the anchor. Um, They were so heavy, so massive that there, there was this crankshaft in the middle, in one of the middle decks, and they would actually strip out the walls. The walls would fold, up inside and they'd have these poles that would go and you'd get dozens and dozens of soldiers uh, sailors would line up around this big crankshaft and they would turn it like you know i don't know if you can picture it just a bunch of men uh, cranking this thing and that's how they would crank up these massive anchors and they did all of this It it was a huge part integrated into the way these ships were built all so that the ship could be secure So that when the storms came or when they needed to put into the port, they were able to stay in place. They were able to be secure. All of that just for that. And that was the picture that came to my mind when I hit this part of this passage. The Lord's promises are a sure and steadfast anchor. A sure, and the author underlies it, sure and steadfast anchor for our storm-tossed souls. It's not like some little rowboat anchor, right? You get a coffee can, fill it with concrete and a rope, and you just throw it over the side so you don't drift away in the pond. That's what I know about anchors. No, this is, this is ponderous. God's promises are a massive, solid, ponderous anchor weighing, spiritually speaking, thousands and thousands of tons all so that they can hold us steady. They can hold us steady no matter how high the waves get, no matter how strong the winds blow. The Lord's promises give us a hope that keeps us steady and so that's the benefit that's the benefit when we trust in god's promises we have a hope our hope is like an anchor it's an anchor for our souls we're going to share around the lord's table this morning Uh, but before i pray and call the elders up and all the rest of that i want to end with a question and it's a pretty simple question and maybe even an obvious one with a sermon like this the question is simply what promise do you need to trust today what promise or promises of the Lord do you need to trust? Today, right now, in this time in your life, maybe it's the promise of heaven. Right? John 14, too, Jesus made a promise. He said, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to my Father's house to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. That's a promise. It's a promise from the word, from the mouth of your Savior. So maybe you've you've lost someone you love, and that promise encourages you. Or maybe you're concerned about yourself. You're facing some health crisis. Whatever the reasons, whatever the details, maybe that's a promise you need to hold on to right now. Or maybe it's the promise of forgiveness, different sort of promise altogether. First John one nine: If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise. It's a promise right there in scripture and maybe 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 you had a rough week you you've sinned against yourself or the lord or your 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 spouse or whoever it was your kids and that's a promise you need to you're just feeling bad you need to grab a hold of that promise that he meant it when he said he forgives us uh, maybe you need help with temptation right you've been facing temptation in some area of your life lately you need the promise of hebrews 2 uh, verse 18 he himself suffered when he was tempted and so he's able to help us when we are tempted, or another temptation promise, James four seven: Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Right? That's a promise. You do your part; God will, God will take care of the rest. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Or, or maybe you've been struggling financially. Again, different sort of promise altogether. You've been struggling financially. Maybe you're underemployed, or uh, you've had some unexpected expenses have come up. Philippians four nineteen: Boy, do you need to stand on that promise. My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. That's a promise. It's a promise worth standing on. Maybe you've been feeling weak lately. Right? You're just worn out. You can't even explain why. You're just worn. You're just worn down. And what you need is a promise like Isaiah 40, verse 31. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. That's a promise. Maybe it's something else entirely. There's a lot of promises in here a lot of promises in this book. Maybe it's something else altogether. I just want to think about it for a moment before I lead us and pray. How would you answer that question? What, what promise of God do you need to be standing on? Do you need to be trusting in right now? Whatever comes to mind, whatever comes to mind, please know that you can trust it. Right, maybe something pops into your head and you're like, oh man, but I've been struggling with that one. Yes, but you can trust it. Just as sure as Abraham could trust the Lord for a child and, and Sarah, I, You can trust because you can trust the one who made it. You can trust the promise because you can trust the one who made it. That's really the the main message of this this morning. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I want to pray that you would help us. We thank you so much. I'll I'll thank you first, Lord, that your promises are trustworthy and true, that you never change, and so your promises never change, that you never lie, and so your promises are, are, are never false. They're always true. And we confess that, we understand that and embrace that by faith. And even as we embrace it by faith, we pray that you'd help us. Uh, I believe, help my unbelief. Help us trust your promises, Lord. I pray for my brothers and sisters who've heard these words and for myself too, that as we do meditate on your promises right now and, and in the rest of this day and as the week unfolds, help us to remember your promises and help us to trust them. And, and really specific ones, Lord. There are different. We're all in different places. And so as we... Think of the different promises, whether it's for strength or hope or peace or joy in the midst of trial, whatever it might be, that you would help us to hold fast to that promise. We pray, Lord, now as you lead us to your table, that you would um, please do forgive us of our sins. And uh, we will pause here, Lord, and just ask you by your Holy Spirit to bring to mind anything we need to confess to you. Uh, If there's any unconfessed sin that we've brought to this service this morning, please remind us of it that we might confess it, and receive that promise of forgiveness.